This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have with me uh, Dr. David Friedman. Would you like to introduce yourself, doctor? Uh, my name is David Friedman. I'm an academic economist who has a doctorate in theoretical physics and specializes in applying economics to law. That's probably enough for present purposes. All right. Thank you for coming on once again. And uh, the reason I wanted to have you on is because I really wanted to talk to somebody about the state of economics. But most of the economists I've had so far on the show and, and most of the ones I plan to have um, are Austrian economics economists but you do not consider yourself an Austrian actually and recently you wrote a paper um, replying to a debate you had with Walter Block who was also a guest on this show um, about your critiques of the Austrian school so the first thing I wanted to ask you is let's get right into the Austrian school and and why you think it's insufficient and and the the um, Chicago the, the school is better the, the problem with that question is that I don't think the Austrian school is very well defined. Okay. That <clears throat> the, the piece I wrote is a draft of a chapter for a book I'm working on, which will have one section on economics and other sections on other things. And it's, it's coming out of my blog posts over about 14 years. And I decided to take the ideas in the blog posts, rewrite them into, into chapters on various subjects. And, uh, but then I had the debate with Walter, which was fun, and that gave me another thing to, to put into it. Uh, but the, the chapter is mostly a critique of Murray Rothbard's work. And Rothbard's version of economics, I am willing to say, is nonsense. That is to say, it is not internally consistent. He does not, in fact, demonstrate the things he wants to demonstrate. And the part which to some extent is true of Austrians in general, but I'm not sure how much, is that he chooses not to use a lot of useful tools. That there are a lot of ways of thinking about things, such as thinking about utility or supply curves as continuous functions, and then using calculus to understand them, uh, which work very well and which Rothbard is bitterly opposed to. Uh, so, but that's Rothbard in particular, and I, as I say, I spend most of it on that. The harder problem, and what I've really been trying to figure out, and I'm not sure I have, is what is true of Austrian economics in general, and in particular, how it differs from Marshallian economics. 
academics. I think Chicago school is really too narrow a, a category. That's what I think of myself as associated with. But it's really two different branches of neoclassical economics, both of which grew out of the marginal revolution in the late 19th century. And there were really three branches, but the, the third, the, the French one in a sense isn't, isn't part of this argument. Um, but basically what I think of as sort of mainline neoclassical economics really descends from the work of Alfred Marshall. And what the Austrians are doing is following a different parallel line through people like Menger, uh, who were doing, I would have said, if you go back to the original Austrians, what they're really doing is more or less the same thing in different language, that, that they're making more use of verbal arguments and less use of mathematical arguments. Uh, but uh, the, at this point, uh, the Austrians at least think of themselves as something as non-Marshallian, uh, which is fine. And the question is, what is the real difference? And that, that's, that's what, what I, I have a hard time being sure of, that I'm pretty sure Mises is less unreasonable than Rothbard, and I'm not sure if he's unreasonable at all. Uh, and part of what seems to be the difference is that the Austrians want to treat economics as an a priori logical system, all of which is known by certain, with certainty. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us don't, I think. Uh, and part of the, in the case of Rothbard, I think that involves making arguments that don't work in order to reach his conclusions. In the case of Mises, if I understand him correctly, it means separating questions about the real world from questions about the logical of the theory. So that he would say that you have two different branches, praxeology and economic history, somewhat odd term for it, but that's, that's what he calls it. And you can prove that a certain conclusion would be true if certain facts were true about the real world, but you can't pr prove those facts are true about the real world. So whereas I would have said, I have a theory, it makes predictions, if the predictions turn out to be false, that suggests maybe the theory is wrong. And I think an Austrian would say, I have a theory, it makes predictions. If the predictions are false, it means the logical structure of the theory is still right. It's just that there were some facts of reality that, did, that were not consistent with the assumptions of that, of, of that argument. So I'm not sure how important a, a difference that is, although in practice, I think it results to some extent in different approaches to how you, to how you do economics. But then there are lots of detailed differences. I've just been having an argument with Robert Murphy who is another Austrian, quite a nice, Walter and, 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 and Robert are both nice people. Uh, but uh, this was on the specific issue of ordinal versus cardinal utility. Whether utility is only a ranking, saying I prefer A to B to C, or whether it makes sense to think of it as A gives me nine utiles, uh, B gives me eight utiles, C gives me seven utiles. And uh, Robert wants to argue that that makes no sense at all. Uh, and this really comes out of some events that happened in ordinary neoclassical economics a little less than 100 years ago, that basically all of the original people uh, on both branches, as it were, were thinking of utility as, as quantitative, uh, as a number. And then Pareto, in some stuff that almost nobody read, showed how you could do things thinking of it only as preferences, only as, as ordinal. And then Hicks, in a book published in the 1930s, gave quite a nice proof 
that everything that was being done with cardinal utility could be done with ordinal utility. Uh, and if you've read a standard economic textbook and you look at indifference curves, that's coming out of Hick's work. That's, that's sort of the machinery that Hick's develops. I, I think he invented it, but I'm not sure. In order to, to do things only saying what is the order of your preferences and not saying by how much. And what's sort of interesting is that about 10 years after Hicks publishes von Neumann and Morgenstern in the second edition of the original game theory book, Theory of Game and Economic Behavior, in an appendix to that, they demonstrate how you can use cardinal utility to analyze decisions under uncertainty. And that's really quite a neat argument in which they prove that if people's behavior is consistent in a certain way in terms of their choices under uncertainty, what are called the von Neumann axioms, that if that's true, then you can always describe people's behavior by assigning a utility to each outcome and predicting that in choosing among uncertain outcomes, you will simply maximize the expected value of utility. Uh, and that turns out to be quite a neat way of thinking about, about a bunch of things. Uh, and so at this point, I would say that Marshallian econ economists often treat utility as ordinal, sometimes treat it as cardinal, depending what they're doing. But I gather, at least from what Robert is saying, that Austrians are wedded to the idea that it's only ordinal. And actually, what I found interesting about that argument was in the process of writing my response, which is going to go up on my blog probably today or tomorrow, I convinced myself that cardinal utility is actually superior to ordinal utility. That is to say, it seemed to me when I was thinking about it that there are reasons why people started out thinking of it as, as, as an amount, as a number, rather than just an ordering. Uh, and that, that it seems to me at least that understanding economics in terms of cardinal utility is easier uh, than understanding it in terms of ordinal, that it more nearly fits our intuitions about the world. And one thing that's relevant, I think, should be relevant to the Austrians, is that one of the things I think both they and I object to is how much modern economics has become mathematics. Uh, my, my friend and colleague, Gordon Tullock, used to refer to ornamental mathematics, meaning that you write an article and you put your argument in some fancy mathematical form to make it sound more original and impressive, when you can make exactly the same argument without, without all of that. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure to be interested, but I could offer examples. There's a, a fairly interesting and important article uh, a fair while ago, uh, which makes a point and it makes it using game theory and you can make exactly the same point using nothing that Marshall didn't know. Uh, but, and, and which is the way I, I would make the same argument. But anyway, my, my, my suspicion is that one result of Swick's, Hicks persuading people to switch to ordinal utility is that that makes economics more mathematical because it is harder to understand it intuitively. That if you understand the ideas, you have let, it's useful to put, to, to put your ideas in mathematical form to make sure you're not making a mistake, which is basically what Marshall was doing. But if, you, if you're talking about things that you can't intuit, it is tempting to just run math uh, and never really know what you're doing. I've seen articles like that too. Uh, so in that sense, I think the Austrians are making a mistake in, 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 in backing ordinal as it were. So if you think, if you try to imagine your own preferences, it just isn't true that your preference for chocolate ice cream over ice cream 
is not smaller than your preference for your house not burning down. All right, if you take literally the ordinal position, all you can say is I prefer cho chocolate to, to vanilla. I prefer my house not burning down to my house burning down. But if you look inside your head, that's not what you feel. What you feel is I have a really big preference not to have my house burned down. And on the whole, I'd rather have chocolate ice cream. Uh, <clears throat> so in that sense, I think that utilities, we actually subjectively experience it, feels more like a cardinal thing, like an amount. Uh, than like just a, just an ordering. And that's that's part of the argument that I'm making. But but in a sense, part of what was interesting to me and the reason that I sort of, in a sense, for I'm grateful to Bob for getting me into this argument is that I persuaded myself that whereas before I would have said, well, Cardinal's very nice for decisions under uncertainty. Other than that, it doesn't matter. Uh, but I think it does matter. Anyway, but that, that's one. But, but I think the more general issue with Austrian as opposed to with Rothbard in particular is whether you are willing to think of economics in terms of things that are pretty good descriptions of reality, but not perfect, or whether you insist on having everything uh, rigorous. So if I take a very simple example, and that's declining marginal utility, all economists pretty much expect that the more money you have, the less an additional dollar will be worth to you. But it is not in fact rigorously true. It's easy enough to think of special situations. My standard example is that the fourth wheel for your car is worth more than the third wheel. Uh, Rothbard's example, which he then tries to talk his way out of, is that you want to make a cake and it takes four eggs. So the extra value of the fourth egg over the third is larger than the third egg over the second. And, uh, and I think that's right. That it seems to me that marginal utility is a pattern that things usually exhibit but there are going to be exceptions. And my impression is that at least Rothbard, but I think maybe Austrians in general, are uncomfortable thinking of it that way. Uh, and that, that they want to be able to say, we know this with certainty. And the problem is the only way you can do that is to abandon the real world and say, we know with certainty what would be true in the following imaginary world, but we don't live there. All right, so I think that, if I think of it sort of stylistically, as it were, in terms of different ways of looking at economics, that seems to me to be, uh, to be the difference. And one thing that comes out of that is that at least Chicago school economists and maybe, maybe Marshallians more generally think of what they're doing as an interaction with the real world. So that I would say, I form a theory, my theories are conjectures. My theories are saying you use economic concepts to say what you think is probably true. You then say, well, if that's true, what observe what things would be true about the real world? What test? How can I test it? You test it. If it fails your test, you say, oops, I must have made a mistake. Maybe my theoretical structure is wrong. Maybe my observations of the real world are wrong. I, I somehow collected my data mistakenly. Uh, maybe my theoretical structure is right, but there is some assumption I forgot about that I was making and that doesn't hold. So it, it's an approach in which, in a sense, you use the theory to make plausible guesses, and you then refine it by confronting it with the real world. And I think that makes a lot of sense because the real world is complicated enough that you really can't prove anything within theory. Uh, the example I go through in my chapter in some detail is the effect of the minimum wage law, that both Austrians and Marshallians would expect that when you impose a minimum wage, when you raise the minimum wage or impose a minimum wage law, you reduce the employment opportunities for unskilled workers, that you've made a particular input to production more expensive, 
And when you make an input more productive, more expensive, people use less of it. And in my chapter, I sketch two different ways you can imagine that conclusion not holding. Uh, and I don't think either of them is likely to describe America in the 21st century, but they could, it's not logically impossible. So therefore, from my standpoint, the theory says we would expect this to happen. Now let's look at the real world data to see if it does. Whereas pretty clearly, uh, Rothbard at least, I think would say, I can prove this is gonna happen. The, if the real world disagrees, that's tough, tough with the data. Uh, the, there, there's a line from one of the German philosophers, so schwerer für die Tatsache, so much the worse for the facts, if the facts disagree with my theory. Uh, I, I don't think that's Mises' position. I think Mises would say the theory shows you th this, uh, and after I point out the ways that may not be too easy, well, that, he might say, well, that's right, but those are somewhat special circumstances. The theory tells you if those special circumstances don't exist, then this will be true. So he doesn't have to say the theory is wrong, but, but the theory was wrong before. This is an imaginary conversation. Mises isn't around to talk about. The theory <laughs> was wrong before he modified it. I should say, my two examples, one of them, the Im more implausible one, is to imagine that the people who consume the goods that are made by unskilled labor have a very strong prejudice against buying things made by what they think of as underpaid workers. So if there is no minimum wage, they say, sorry, I don't buy those things because that's just exploiting the workers who, who work at it. Put on a minimum wage and say, all right, well, we now know those people are getting a decent wage, so we'll buy those goods sort of an odd way to behave, but it's, it's not absurd. Human economics doesn't tell us what people's preferences are. And if that's right, then the employment goes up instead of down. The more interesting case, and the case that in the Cardin Kruger article, which actually raised the minimum wage issue, is suppose the employers are all monopsonies. Suppose that in each village, there is one, one, one person, one farmer who hires unskilled labor. Well, a monopsony holds down the amount it buys of its inputs in order to hold down their price the same way a monopoly holds up the amount it sells of its output in order to hold up its price. So if you imagine the monopoly, monopsony says to himself, well, actually, our, our, the workers are worth $10 an hour to us. We, that's how much we can make by hiring a worker. But if we only pay them $8 an hour, we won't get quite as many workers, but we're saving $2 an hour on the ones we get, so why should I raise it to 10 put in a minimum wage law, you forced him to raise it to $10 an hour. Well, paying $10 an hour anyway, I might as well hire all the workers I can use at $10 an hour. So that's not a logically impossible situation. I don't think it describes those markets in the US at present, but you could imagine a, a, a time and, and, a, and a place where it would. Uh, and therefore that's an example of the fact that what looks like a very solid conclusion. I remember uh, Jim Buchanan, who was a colleague of mine a long time ago, commented at one point, that all economists agree that raising the minimum wage reduces employment for unskilled workers. And that is not an empirical statement. That's a definition of economist. Well, he was wrong. Uh, and he was a bright guy. Uh, he even got a Nobel Prize. He even deserved a Nobel Prize. Uh, and, but not for that. But in any case, uh, so, so I think, to me at least, those are the, the real differences but I'm not even sure that even that is true of all of the Austrians, because you know it's not like there's a stamp of approval that calls you an Austrian. Uh, so I am pretty sure that Rothbardians are all doing economics wrong. 
but I'm not at all sure that all other people who call themselves Austrians are. And then you would have to know more than I do, because at this point I've spent a fair amount of, of effort arguing with uh, Walter and, 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 and with Bob and maybe a few other people, but I haven't really argued with various of the people. Uh, I don't know, Larry White may still consider himself an Austrian, I don't know, but he certainly did interesting stuff on, on Scottish banking and he, he may, I, I may or may not disagree with him on economic theory, except that he's in favor of ordinal utility, but I might be able to persuade him that he's wrong <laughs> on that. Well, I I gotta say that that was a very thorough examination of of the Austrian school, and I think I think you brought up even things that I you know I tend to consider myself an Austrian, but I'm I'm not an economist by any means. Uh, I'm no longer an econ major, but you know uh, I do kind of think uh, agree somewhat on the ordinal versus cardinal scaling issue. Um, but I wanted to get more specifically into asking you about uh, you know is your problem a, a, one of your big problems with the Austrian school that it is too rigid especially with Rothbardians in denying the problem with Rothbard is that he's wrong that's very <laughs> simple my problem <clears throat> I'm not sure I have a problem with the Austrian school in general but if I, I do see. it is that their methodological approach seems to me to work less well than my methodological approach that would be the basic basic argument that they are too committed to saying all you can say about economics is what's true for certainty whereas i don't think that there is much in the world you can say for certainty and it seems to me that you have to figure out how to sort of blunder through approximate pictures of reality figuring out which ones are pretty good approximate pictures and so forth mm -hmm. uh, so one of the examples i discuss in in there is my first published journal article in economics was the theory of the size and shape of nations. And it was an attempt to explain general features of European history from the fall of the Roman Empire to the present. And I had a theory, and it was a theory which seemed reasonable in economic terms, but it was not a theory I thought I could prove. That is, I was saying, here is a way you can imagine states acting in deciding how hard they will fight for territory, basically. and as the re things relevant to that change, here's how the equilibrium distribution of, of borders would change. And I made the theory. I eventually found some ways of testing predictions of the theory, and it seemed to fit the predictions. But I could certainly imagine other factors that could have overwhelmed mine. So from my standpoint, it was a plausible guess. I then say, well, it becomes a more plausible guess when I've tested its predictions, and it tells me some things that might have not have occurred to me before, and then I look and sure enough, it's true. Uh, so I have some reason to believe it's true, but it's not like I know it's true. And I think Austrians are uncomfortable with that level of, of, of analysis, as far as I can tell. Well, I can say from my experience with Austrians and, and the Austrian school, I, I've seen a very much a rejection, though, of, of making bold, uh, like bold predictions about what exactly is going to happen for example i had um jonathan newman who is a scholar associated with the mises institute on and he was very much against saying exactly what will happen but he was very much on saying this is logically what we can deduce from um axioms we know and i think that you do make a good point that there is a problem of 
Austrians trying to know everything for certain when there is a lot of uncertainty about things. But I wanted to ask you, do you think that be, is because a lot of Austrians reject the role of empiricism and, and you know, data in the role of economics um, very much for the reason that you actually said that they're ironically fueling the more the mathematics of economics by being for ordinal scaling rather of a uh, utility rather than cardinal scaling. I don't. I don't think that the rejection uh, of uh, of sort of data is really very much connected. That's what I'm concerned with. Is not uh, econometrics. Econometrics okay. is sort of a mix of economic statistics and witchcraft because you're modeling systems that you know are much too complicated and you hope that you can get something useful and maybe you can, it's not the sort of work I've ever done, but I'm more concerned with teaching economics in terms of mathematical theorems without the person who learns them ever understanding why they're true. I see. That it seems to me it is possible to follow a theorem from axioms to conclusion step by step and at the end not have any feel for why it's true. And it's not just in economics. My one of the standard, uh, I, I, I'm a Harvard graduate, Harvard alumnus, and I interview applicants for the school. Uh, and one of the questions I often ask them, and I don't think I've ever gotten the answer to, is can you explain why the fundamental theorem of calculus is true? Fundamental theorem is that integration and derivation are, are inverse operations. For, I don't know if you're familiar with calculus, but basically that uh, if you if you integrate something and then take the derivative of that, you'll get back to where you started. And it is possible to show a intuitive reason it's true in like five minutes and one sheet of paper. As far as I can tell, I think none, maybe almost none of the of the people who had taken AP calculus could do it. And that it just seems to me is a waste of time. And you know, if you want to know the theory, you look it up in a book. But if you want to know the, if you want to know the proof of the theory, you look it up in a book. But if you want to actually work with ideas, you have to understand the ideas. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried that too much, that, that economics has gone too much the, the wrong way. My, my daughter first went to Oberlin for two years and then transferred to Chicago. And when she transferred to Chicago, she was considering the possibility of majoring in economics, which she enjoyed at Oberlin. And she'd enjoyed talking about it. She's got a footnote in one of my articles for an idea she proposed and so forth back when she was a high school age, homeschooled student, homeschooled student. And she took one intermediate class and decided not to take economics because she likes economics. She doesn't like mathematics and the class was mostly about mathematics. Uh, and, I, and I discussed that with a, a, a professor at, at Chicago who I have a high opinion of. And he also had a daughter who was an undergraduate and he had the same opinion that it was much too much uh, and on the other side, I should say the first, the introductory course, at least at the time, was taught by a guy who, who was teaching intuition. His, one of his stories uh, is that he's driving with one, one of his students is, is driving a car and he's in the car and the student tells him to put on his seatbelt. And he says, well, why should I put on my seatbelt? She says, because it'll make you less likely to get hurt in an accident. And he says, well, in that case, should you take yours off? She's the driver. If she doesn't have a seatbelt, she will drive more carefully because she'll be at more risk if there's an accident. Therefore, logically speaking, if the only thing you cared about was reducing his chance of getting hurt, hurt he, she should take off her seatbelt. 
And that's, that goes back to an argument made by Gordon Tullock a long, long time ago, that if you wanted to reduce highway accidents, you design cars with a dagger in the middle of the steering wheel pointing up, and then drivers will drive very carefully. Right? <laughs> so all of that is a matter of intuiting economics, of understanding the ideas, not, uh, you, you, you could formalize it in some mathematical form if you like. There's a letter from Alfred Marshall actually on the subject of uh, partly of math, where he says that you, you work out your ideas mathematically to make sure that they're right. You then translate them into English. You then find some real world example to which the idea you've worked out has something to do with. If you can't do that, you burn the mathematics. Uh, and, and I think that's a generally sense. I like to say that I wonder how much of the economics of the 20th century went into Alfred Marshall's fireplace. Uh, <laughs> so, I think it's good that you made a bit of a pivot to modern economics in general, because in addition to talking about the Austrian school, mostly because it was it was topical to what you had been discussing already, um, but I wanted to add, talk about m economics as a discipline in, in general, and I find the story of your daughter very interesting because I had the same exact problem. Uh, I was my first year of undergrad was at George Mason University as the econ major and then when I transferred I took an intermediate class and learned it was all mathematics at this other university yeah. and my interest waned completely. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to ask was about why do you think there is this change in economics, or at least that the development of economics has been more and more towards basically becoming more integrated with I, the field of mathematics? I don't know. Uh, the I feel a good deal more comfortable talking about Austrian versus Chicago than about the general field of economics, because I only, my specialty for what, the last 25 or 30 years has been applying economics to law. So I'm not watching in any detail what sort of other people in the field are doing. I, I don't read the journals with any regularity. Uh, and presumably part of what's going on, and this is really Tullock's point, is that the way the academic world works, there's a payoff to saying something new. And there are two, there are three ways of saying something new. The hard one is to actually have a new idea. The other two are either to have an idea that's wrong and therefore hasn't been said before. And I think quite a lot of empirical research, not necessarily economics, is in that category. That if you are familiar with what was referred to as the replication crisis, when it turned out that a lot of supposedly solid, moderately famous works, when you tried to do the experiment again, it didn't happen. And I think what was going on, they probably, probably most of them were not fraudulent. Probably most of them were ones where somebody made a mistake the mistake gave a really interesting result. And it was a novel result because it wasn't true and therefore hadn't been shown before. So they published it. Uh, and, uh, and the third way though, and the way that's relevant here is by doing something unoriginal in a new way. So if you say, all right, uh, I've looked at some new, new area of mathematics that hardly any of the other economists know about. And I can apply it to some economic question and I can write an article about it. People say, look, isn't that original? Uh, and once in a while, it's right. That is, once in a while, you have a case where the new bit of mathematics really tells you something interesting. But most of the time, it doesn't. Uh, but it still may get you a publication, and getting a publication is important. So that's one of the things that I think is happening. 
beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a very clear picture. You know, I've suggested that the shift away from cardinal utility may have had some effect in that direction of making it harder for people to intuit to see the ideas rather than the rather than the formalism. Uh, and you know, part of it is just status, the fact that physics has been a very successful field in the 20th century, and therefore natural to say, well, look, we can make our economics look more like physics, because look, economists use all, the, the physicists use all this math, so why don't we use all this math? Uh, and I guess part of it, I'm not sure how large a part, is that what von Neumann was trying to do in the theory of games and economic behavior was to actually do a rigorous analysis of strategic behavior, of situations where I wasn't just facing a physical world and trying to optimize against it, but facing a bunch of other people, all of whom responded to what I do and I do respond to what they're doing and so forth. And that was what game theory was supposed to do and it failed. I like to describe that that book is the most impressive failure of the 20th century because von Neumann, who was certainly one of the smartest people of the 20th century, starts out with this very, very ambitious and very important project that he could do it. That's diplomacy, it's games, it's economics, it's a very wide range of behavior. Uh, calling it game theory is just because it's easy to think about strategic behavior in formal games. Uh, what he actually does is he solves the simplest version of it, which is the two-player zero-sum game game where people are entirely opponents. So anything that I gave, it, it helps me, hurts you and vice versa. And he shows a plausible definition of what's a solution to that game and how in principle you would find it. So that from von Neumann's standpoint, any two player game is a solved problem. It's just you'd have to have a computer with a, a large enough computer running for long enough to, to do the math to do it. Uh, that from that standpoint, chess is the trivial game. Uh, and on the other hand, any game where both sides can gain, or any game with more than two people, he then spends the rest of the book trying to find solutions to that. He never finds any very good solution. And various other people since then, who I think were generally not as smart as von Neumann, came up with various ideas. And some of the ideas are interesting. They're sort of neat ways of thinking about strategic behavior, but none of them really tell you with any confidence what'll happen. Uh, and that's true of Nash Equilibrium, which is one of the popular ones of subgame perfect equilibrium, which was popular in law and econ about 25 years ago, for all I know still is. Uh, and all of those, I mean, they're, they're, they're fun, they're, they're neat ways of thinking about things, and once you get into it, you can make them very mathematical if you feel like it, uh, but they don't really deliver what you want, which is be able to say, we're sure this is true, uh, the way you can in mathematics. Uh, so. Yeah, people really want certainty. I was just came across an entirely different field. Somebody was, someone writing about something related to climate change. He quoted some resolution by some Austra or some group of Australian scientists or whatever saying, and such and such, it should now be treated as a fact. Not a theory, not a conjecture, it's a fact. Uh, might be true, but they're wrong. I mean, they could, even the claim that the reason climate is warming is due to humans is not a fact. It is a very, very plausible conjecture. There's good evidence for it. But climate's a very complicated system. Temper global temperatures have gone up and down before, although we don't have examples that are going up as fast as they're going up at the moment. So probably it's due to the reasons we think it's due to. It might be wrong, uh, but people don't like that. Right? 
uh, they want to believe in certainty. So I, I think something that you've brought up a lot is the certainty question versus uncertainty, um, particularly in terms of the Austrian school and then just this economics and then the disciplines in general, um, all scientific disciplines. And I wanted to ask, um, when do you think that, I guess specifically in the field of economics, a uncertainty becomes a certainty? Well, uh, a prediction, I suppose, becomes a certainty after it happens. But other than in that sense, I don't think it does. I don't think, you know, if I think of economic propositions that I'm pretty sure about, such as if you double the amount of money, prices will go up a lot. That seems to me very, very plausible. It's almost always true, but you can imagine if you try hard enough circumstances in which it might not be true. Uh, so, so I would say no. I don't. Th I don't. I think. I don't think that's a useful way of thinking about things. I think you want to say, I have good reasons to believe such and such, but I could be wrong. There's, there's a quote my father used to be fond of from uh, a gentleman who was military dictator of England for about twenty years, uh, Cromwell. Uh, by the in by the bowels of Christ, I beseech you, bethink you that you may be mistaken. <laughs> and well, I I think that is is you know certainly something most people don't want to hear is is the 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 well we may this is what we may think I think do people do really want to hear certainty, but that brings me to ask then. Do you not believe that there are any, you know, set in stone economic laws? For example, uh, you know, if I was to say value is subjective, would you say that we can't know that law. for that, certain? That, that's saying what you mean by by value. Okay. So, so you you're different. So you would differentiate from economic law, the economic law, and just the meaning of various yeah. economic. Um, I think an economic Phrases. law is some proposition about things you know will happen in the real world under I some see. circumstances. So I, I would get, I guess I would ask, what is the main distinction between that, and what, what, what is the way that you tell that 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 is distinguishable from one another? So if, if I say, for example, economic uh, value is a subjective thing, therefore, um, you know people's preferences will be ever-changing. That doesn't imply they'll be ever-changing. You could have people with exactly the same preferences for their whole life. Okay. So so that's where you make the distinguish is, is the therefore... Even if, you go back, even if you go back before the subjectivist revolution, uh, if you said to, uh, to Ricardo, mm -hmm. uh, prices will always... Because you claim that, 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 that value is based on production costs, therefore prices will always, will never change. And he would say, no, that's not true because here's circumstances under which production cost changes. Okay. Right. I, I, I see the difference there, but I wanted to clarify and make it very clear uh, because I know this is a concept that I see people get mixed up a lot is, is mm -hmm. the idea of, well, this is a set in stone fact and this is defining terms. Um, yes. I see that constantly. And I wanted to ask, you know, where do you particularly see it causing problems for not just the 
economics in general, but I, I guess your specific field of interest, that being economics of law. Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, probably the most influential person in the field was Ronald Coase with uh, two articles that he wrote a long time ago. And I wrote a piece which later became part of one of my books, which was trying to explain how Coase's ideas would be used in order to figure out what legal rules should be. And Coase was a colleague of mine at the time at the University of Chicago Law School. And he read the piece, obviously, and he commented to me that you never really understood your ideas until someone else explained them to you. And I suspected, knowing Coase, that he was being very quietly sarcastic. And later, I agreed to do a article on Coase's final book, which is a book on how China went capitalist, uh, which is a very interesting book, co-authored with a Chinese, with Ning, Ning, Ningwa, I think. Anyway, a Chinese economist. And to do that, I first reread all of Coase's stuff. And I think I now know what he meant. And that is that what from he, what I was seeing as a description of how to do to do it right, he was seeing as a proof that the way we thought we were doing it was not right, and that we didn't know enough to do it right. So that I think from his standpoint, what I was describing was the project we should start on in about 50 years from now, after figuring out a bunch of things we didn't understand very well, having to do with transaction costs and how people deal with transaction costs. Uh, and that's fine, I mean, because when I wrote it up, I put it in, in form of here is how you would answer these questions if you knew enough. And of course, we don't know all of these things, but it seems to me that knowing how you would answer the question if you knew enough gives you at least some help in trying to figure out how to use your very imperfect knowledge to make a very imperfect answer to the question. Uh, but that was a case where if Coase is right, uh, a lot of modern economics is, is, is wrong in the sense that we're correct, doing correct logic, missing critical points of the story. So uh, Coase was really, in a sense, responding to uh, what had been an accepted argument for a long time, uh, that you the way to deal with externalities is by Pigouvian tax. He was really answering Pigou's argument. And what he showed was that if, tra if transaction costs were zero, then you don't need the Pigouvian rule. And that in general, the Pigouvian rule could make things worse as well as could make things better. I discuss that in, in, in my book, Law's Order, which is the current place where I go through all of this stuff. Uh, so in any case, uh, but, but so that might be an answer. But, but more generally, I just, the thing is, part of the problem is that what I do is what I find interesting. And what gets attention is what is what people want to know in the real world. And what they want to know in the real world sometimes is stuff that economics can't do a very good job of telling them, and so economists do the best they can and, and may not be very good. So if you're thinking about the sort of real world questions, what will inflation be in the next five years? Well, that's a very interesting question, but we may not have enough good enough tools. Certainly, that's not something I'm an expert on. It. We may not have good enough tools to answer it, but people will spend a lot of time trying. So people end up thinking of economics as inflation and unemployment predictions, essentially. and and those are valuable things, but those those are not, to me at least, the interesting things. And so it's not what I do and not something which I'm really in a good position to tell you how people are doing it right or wrong. Of course. And the final kind of question I wanted to ask is because you did bring up that you are focusing on economics as applied to law. 
and um, a lot of people do really do think about economics as just this in predicting inflation, predicting unemployment. And, you know, when I talk to somebody who, who's a layman when it comes to economics, they really only think about it in this terms. So I wanted to ask you um, kind of it's a two pronged question. The first being what do you, why do you think it is that economics has gotten this um, status as kind of just a thing about money and mm-hmm. and unemployment and inflation or and, and then secondly, how is it that your work um, seeks to defy that uh, with the findings it is it, it finds and as well the methodology you use but but, but, but i'm not starting this that for sure jim buchanan got his nobel prize for applying economics to politics gary becker got his economic prize for applying it to understanding families and some other things related to that uh adam smith has a lovely explanation of the rise of feudalism on economic grounds uh i'm not sure he's right but it's a neat argument uh so, no, I think that that the information about things like inflation and unemployment is very important. People want to answer to those questions, and economists may be a little better at, probably are a little better at answering those questions than anybody else, so that gets a lot of attention. And uh, not that many people want to know how do you make sense of legal systems. Uh, maybe more people should want to know how you make sense of political systems, but political systems have large effects on all of us. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, so so, it's just a matter, I think, of 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 what the the public wants to know about it. You know, the I bet there are things in climate science that are at least as interesting as as global warming, but they aren't what you see in the newspapers. Yeah, and then kind of a little more on the second part of that is what I'm looking for is kind of what current um, projects in studying the economics of law do you find are, are most important and what, where does the methodology come from that? I don't know. What, what, the, the, the most recent thing that I did, my most recent book, was trying to make sense of a bunch of different legal systems. Okay. Trying to say, all right, we spend almost all of our time on Anglo-American law. There are a whole bunch of other legal systems that have existed. Some of them existed for long periods of time. Some of them are very different from ours. Can we understand them? And I found that an interesting project. And I wrote a book about it with two chapters by other people, the rest of the book by me, one of them being Peter Leeson and David Scarbeck. David was, I think, at at George Mason at some point. Uh, And they had done books on particular legal systems. So I got them to turn the books into into one chapter each and add them to my book. Uh, and that was fun, but I don't know that there is, I mean, it's it's a very large world with very many interesting questions in it and different people are interested in different things. And, you know, I have a, te- a tendency when I see a description of some interesting piece of work, say, oh, wait a minute, I should be doing that. But it doesn't really work because there's just too much of a, of a world. I mean, you know, I should also be doing lots of other things. I should, you know, be solving the aging problem, for example, which would be very nice to get solved. <laughs> I'm not the right person to do it, and I just hope somebody else does uh, sometime in the next uh, 20 years or so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's all the questions I had for you. I, I like to give my guests, though, an opportunity to promote anything they have going on, anything they want my sure. audience to for sure know about right now. Sure. Um, so anything let me prom- at Let all. me promote mostly my webpage. 
okay. which is daviddfriedman.com. So it's easy to remember. D is my middle initial. And it contains links to full text of probably most of my books, certainly a fair number of my books, as well as the full text of most of my articles, both academic and non-academic. So if, and it also has videos of a lot of the talks I've given and some of the interviews like this one that I've done and so forth. So if people find those ideas interesting, it also contains, I should say, links to a whole bunch of medieval recipes because one of my and my wife and daughter's hobbies is cooking from very old cookbooks. Uh, the old, earliest one we've done much from is from the 10th century. Uh, and uh, so you find the recipes and try cooking them and keep trying them until they taste good. And then write it that right down how you do it. Uh, and it's got some of my poetry and it's got, doesn't have either of my novels, but, but it's got links to where you can buy my, my, any of my three novels actually, buy my novels. But mostly it's if, if you want to know about my ideas about economics and libertarianism and anarchy and a variety of other things, you can find those, those things there. Yeah, and I will make sure to link that web page down below so everyone has access to it. Um, I want to. Thank I have you. a blog, but there's a link to the blog at the top of the web page that you can use, and it's not very active at the moment. I'm doing other things, but I occasionally put up a post on it. Yeah, and I'll make sure uh, that people get to that too. As I, I've read, I've read your blog for a few years now, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it every time you post. Good. So. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on and, and appreciate it very much. Thank you. Yes. I always enjoy a chance to talk to people. Bye-bye. <laughs>